So thank you very much. I've, I've often challenged all the folks working in hepatitis C research to say all those names fast five times. None of them can do it. So, although I think Debica comes close. Um, our next uh, portion of the program this morning is hopefully a fun one for everyone. I'd like to ask the members of our panel to come up to the front because Eric is going to embarrass us in front of the rest of the crowd. So our next uh, component of the program uh, is the our contemporary issues in antiretroviral therapy. This is going to be an interactive case management, case-based panel discussions. Hopefully all of the audience response system things will work on this one. So I'm introducing Eric Dar, who's a professor of medicine at UCLA here, and he's going to lead this discussion. So, panel members, work your way up here. All right, I think this has you set up. Perfect. Okay. Thank you, good afternoon. Because it, it's into lunch hour. This is, I think, the latest lunch I've seen for a conference. So it's actually probably better because we don't have the serotonin rush immediately after lunch. Uh, so what I'm going to do is uh, spend the next hour or so going through some cases. And this is to be as interactive with all of you as it is to be interactive with our panel. Uh, and in putting this together, I put together three or four cases that we may have time for. I was trying to think of things that come up in our clinic frequently, commonly asked questions and issues, as well as an opportunity not so much to come up with challenging cases for which we know the answer, but challenging cases in which there's perhaps evolving data that could inform um, what we might do for a given patient. So with that, these are my disclosures, which are available to you. Um, and we'll be talking about currently recommended regimens for treating infection in specific populations, um, how managed patients, sorry about the typo, uh, those who have drug-resistant virus, and initiate and modify treatment in those with comorbid conditions. So let me start with this sort of pre-post-test question, and we'll come back to this again at the end. So we'll just ask you for your answers. I don't think we'll be showing the answers at this time, uh, and we won't discuss it either. So which of the following have not been shown to be effective in phase three trials of viremic patients? Darunavir ritonavir plus nukes, darunavir ritonavir plus raltegravir, lopinavir ritonavir plus raltegravir, lopinavir, ritonavir, plus 3TC, and then dolutegravir plus rilpivirine. So go ahead and vote. Oh, sorry. I guess we are showing the answers. Okay. <laughs> That's okay. We won't discuss it, though, and we'll come back to it. Okay, great. I think we're done. So let's move on. So the first patient I have titled newly diagnosed and ready to go. So this is a 34-year-old man, presents to clinic after having routine HIV antibody screening test that was positive at a local testing site. He had a confirmatory test. He's had a CD4 count that just came back at 570. And he was re immediately referred to you and is upset with the diagnosis, but understands that there's good treatment available has insurance to cover the costs of care, 
but is nonetheless not completely sure he wants to start treatment. He understands that his immune system is in fairly good shape. He has no past medical histories, and he's completely asymptomatic. So the question for all of you is the usual in facing a patient like this. Uh, which of the following is closest to what you would recommend to the patient with regards to starting therapy? You'd strongly encourage him to start, recommend he start, support him in his wishes to defer, um, or something else. So go ahead and vote. Oh, I'm sorry. I'll get it. Okay, so in reality, almost everybody would at the very minimum recommend he start therapy. And certainly this is completely consistent with current guidelines and the available data. And I, I don't think anybody could argue with the difference between recommend start and strongly encouraged start. Uh, and this, again, is data I suspect everybody is familiar with. This was the large randomized control trial, the START study of individuals with over 500 CD4 cells who were randomized to either start immediate therapy or wait until they got to less than 350. The study was stopped prematurely because of about a 50% reduction in the risk of a composite endpoint of AIDS and non-AIDS-related events, and the interesting observation that about two-thirds of these events occurred in people despite having CD4s of greater than 500. So this, along with the prevention data in HPTN052 and other studies, suggesting that there's not just an individual benefit, but a public health benefit of starting therapy, even with high T cells, has led to this uh, general consensus now across the world, the US, Europe, and WHO guidelines, that we should be starting therapy in everybody, regardless of CD4. So I think that part is pretty straightforward. And now the question is, do we sort of push the envelope? So the patient comes in, you tell them that you are at least recommending, if not strongly encouraging, um, and the patient decides that he is willing to start therapy uh, and that it's the right thing to do. And the question for you is, what would you recommend next? Would you send routine laboratory studies, an HIV genotype, and schedule for follow-up appointment when results return? Send routine laboratory studies without a genotype and start antiretrovirals immediately? Send routine laboratory studies with a genotype and still start drugs immediately or something else? Go ahead and vote. Great, a nice even split. Mm -hmm. So half of the people said they would do what I think has been generally the standard of care, is send everything off and have the person come back. And the other half are saying that they would be a little bit more aggressive in starting antiretrovirals and actually start them on that first visit. So maybe the question I'll start with you, Connie, is not just sort of what you would like to do, but what you actually do in clinical practice. <laughs> I don't know. I asked somebody else. <laughs> no, I think the, the push really is to get people started on therapy immediately and not wait for results of laboratory testing. Um, 
when you look at studies of linkage to care and longitudinal follow-up, there's still an appreciable loss of people between the time when you send your laboratory studies and then ask them to come back for return follow-up. So there's been an, I think, increasing pressure on most clinical providers to start therapy immediately. And most of the data show that uh, starting immediately with the current regimens that we have isn't going to impact anything substantially while you're waiting for routine labs and genotype. Yeah, Steve, what are you doing in Colorado? Well, I think, um, you know, I think we're doing a mixture of one and three. I think if you're using your case as an example, that kind of reticence to start therapy might be a factor. But uh, I think we try to push number three. And, you know, there are data, there was this rapid study that was done in San Francisco that rapidly got people onto antiretroviral therapy and showed a faster time to virologic suppression. So I think if, if the patient is willing to start, you know, uh, starting at the first visit is appropriate, and as uh, Dr. Benson pointed out, uh, integrase-based regimens or protease inhibitor-based regimens would be the right approach in that setting. Ron or Jeff, anything to add, or we can, we can move on? No, I, I think the fact that the fellow was willing and had been convinced or was willing to uh, start therapy really kind of tips your hand towards treating immediately. Yeah. Okay. Jeff? Yeah, I mean, just, uh, you know, practically, um, often people won't necessarily receive the medications that same day, so there's still a variety of different hopes, you know, hoops up to go through with the pharmacy and benefits. So there's still a, you know, few days, so it's to advantage to initiate that process as soon as possible. Yeah, and those are some of the practical issues that we struggle with, even for the patient who wants to leave. And it's not unusual that patients really want to leave with drug. They're convinced, they believe, and they want drug, and we can't always give it to them. Um, and I'll make a shameless plug that there is an ACTG study for people with acute infection where there actually is drug available at the study site. So you can start somebody on uh, integrase inhibitor-based regimen immediately the day they enroll. And it actually allows us to enroll before all of the data comes back, recognizing that the clock is ticking for a timely start. But this is really getting more at the issue of what's lost by waiting. And, and it's probably not that the person's gonna progress to clinical AIDS or non-AIDS events in between now and the next visit. I think it's really what Connie suggested, is that there may be a benefit of getting the person locked in early and hopefully relatively little risk. So, so there's been more and more discussion about this, but I have to say, despite the enthusiasm, there are the obstacles that Jeff alluded to. The, also, the data is somewhat limited. So just to share a little bit of it, this was a randomized control trial in South Africa of almost 400 individuals who were randomized to either receive the standard of care, which was, in this case, three to five additional clinic visits, so probably more than the standard of care in our setting where usually it's maybe one extra visit, um, and then versus uh, starting uh, immediately. And the primary outcome was viral load of less than 400 within 10 months, and there was a significant benefit in the early versus the late, 64 versus 41%. And then the secondary outcome of initiating therapy within 90 days, and that's what, um, I don't, does this show up? No. So, um, so here you can see those who started right away, it's not surprising that they ended up on therapy earlier than the control group. I think the important observation is that more of them ended up on therapy with time than those who were in the control group. Again, supporting the fact that there may have been some benefit. This was truly a randomized control trial, although obviously a different setting than the one we work in. 
And then what was mentioned was the San Francisco experience, which is the domestic experience with Rapid Start. Uh, and this gets talked about a lot, and it was recently published in Jade's. And here it was a little bit different because it wasn't a randomized control trial, so it's important to understand that. The other thing that's important to know is that the rapid cohort was a somewhat select population of individuals. These were mostly people who were presenting to care for the first time who either had what was defined as early infection within the last six months, so maybe an additional incentive to start early, or had very low T cells, another additional incentive to start early. And um, they compared it to a, a usual care group. And this is the data looking at the percent of the, of the patients that ended up on antiretroviral therapy in the days after initial clinic visit. And you can see those in the rapid group were much more likely to end up on therapy than those in the non-rapid group, even when you get out to 30 days. So it wasn't just a fact of earlier versus later. Even at 30 days, there seemed to be a benefit associated with those offered treatment early. But again, it's important to acknowledge the, the difference. This was not a randomized controls trial. These were unique individuals that may have otherwise been more incentivized to start therapy. So that's really the extent of the kind of data that justifies this increasing desire to start early if we can. Um, one of the concerns, as sort of alluded to and I built into the question, is that we're starting therapy without a genotype in this setting. And traditionally, we've increasingly become accustomed to waiting for genotypes. It's been in the guidelines now for some time, and that we use that information to drive therapy. So there was an opportunity to look at what the consequences were in the San Francisco group. In a setting where there's generally been a lot of transmitted resistance, what were the consequences of starting in the absence of resistance data being available? So you can see here between the groups the number of people who had genotypes obtained, the majority, and the number of people who had any resistance detected. And it was a considerable amount, 25% in the rapid group, 42% in the other group. But overall, outcomes were very good. And you can see the majority of people did indeed start integrase-based regimens. And in fact, the majority received dolutegravir-based regimens. So one of the factors that may have led to the better outcomes is that there was more integrase use, both that there's much a rare integrase-transmitted resistance. And this data has been updated, was recently updated at CROI, again, showing it's very, very rare to see integrase-transmitted resistance across multiple centers in the United States. And the dolutegravir may still be effective even in those people, the rare people who had some nuke-transmitted resistance. And then this was sort of the punchline here was the time to viral suppression. And you can see those who started early got to suppression much quicker. Those who had sort of the standard, you know, universal, everyone's going to get therapy, but we're not going to rush it, got there as well, but it took longer. And then there are the people who waited until their CD4s got low enough to justify it, who were even slower to get there. And there may be benefits, not just for the patient again, but from a public health perspective, getting people on therapy, reducing their risk of transmission to others. So I like to talk about this case because it's gotten so much attention now in the community. Um, it's certainly something that we're talking about in our clinic all the time. Um, but it is worth knowing sort of the extent of the data to support it. Jeff. Um, I, I was curious in that San Francisco study, you know, thinking that there, you know, is the potential for um, instituted resistance if anyone was started on uh, dolutegravir BID. Um, initially, you know, while waiting for a, um, you know, genotypes to come back, um, you know, would that be an even potentially safer strategy 
um, to overcome other integrase resistance? Yeah, so I, my, my guess is not. I don't recall. And, you know, this data from Croy where they looked at, it was thousands of people and looked for integrase resistance. I think of the acute people, the transmitted resistance people, not the people who might have received some care. I think there were like two. The frequency was 0.04% any integrase resistance. So I think at this point, still integrase, transmitted integrase resistance is sufficiently rare that it's probably not necessary to do that yet. So you encourage him to start on the same day. He's anxious to do that. Now you talked him into starting, he wants to start now. Um, he states he has no specific concerns regarding adherence, side effects, or dosing schedules. And the question is, which would you recommend? And I have listed here a long list of regimens, but basically, with a few exceptions, like Tanoff for FTC efavirenz and Rilpivirine-based regimen, these are some of the preferred options in the guidelines. So go ahead and vote between the nukes and a boosted PI, nukes and raltegravir, efavirenz, rilpivirine, elvitegravir, dolutegravir or something else. Again, his laboratories are all pending at this time, including his genotype. Lots of choices, you got 20 seconds. I thought we said we were gonna go queen and only queen. <laughs> okay, great. So we have about half or so went with dolutegravir, similar to what was used in the San Francisco experience, and about a third almost went with the Elvitegravir-based regimen. Uh, and interestingly, the boosted PI only 6%. So, any comments from the panel what you would use? You had to pick one. The patient's willing to take anything. Jeff, what would you have done? Um, I actually chose the single tablet regimen, so the uh, you know, TDF, FTC, COBE, and Elvitegravir. Um, you already told us that uh, prevalence of integrase resistance was you know, very, very low. Um, I did have a patient recently who, who did present with integrase resistance, so it just kind of heightened mm -hmm. my um, awareness um, around the issue. Mm -hmm. a, uh, young, um, actually, UCLA, uh, student. So, um, but I think uh, there's still value to keeping things simple with this single tablet regimen. Yeah, Steve, you're looking puzzled. No, no, uh, just my normal look, I guess. <laughs> the, uh, I, I think those two, the two popular choices, I think, are, are the right choices. We, we obviously don't have HLA testing and uh, don't really, I don't think you mentioned the viral load, but. We don't have it yet. High viral loads would, mitigate against a ropivirine-containing regimen. So, I mean, I think uh, I probably might do the TAF-FTC dolutegravir just, but. I, I, I guess, Ron? I guess the one concern is if he is on uh, other medications that Kobe might interfere with. Yeah. But he, uh, assuming that he's not. He's not, so. Connie, what would you do? I chose the single tablet regimen also. Yeah just because he expressed a little hesitance at the beginning, and although he says no problem with adherence, you don't really know that, and I thought it would be most appropriate for this person to get started on all of his drugs at once with one tablet. Yeah, so I think those would be the important considerations is simplicity. I mean, tolerability is sort of a given, and probably why efavirenz is not as popular as it used to be, 
but simplicity, so that's the advantage. We didn't have a lot of single tablet regimen options here without HLA-B5701 testing. Um, and then the other consideration is the issue of moving forward without resistance data. And, um, you know, traditionally in that setting, the boosted PIs have been considered to have an advantage because even if there's nuke resistance transmitted, there's very rarely boosted PI resistance and resistance is unlikely to be selected for quickly. And that's sort of been the advantage. That's why it's interesting to see so few have chosen it. And it, it shows how we've moved away. Mm -hmm. it, you look at preferred options in the current US guidelines, ISUSA doesn't include a boosted PI at all. And DHHS is still clinging to a boosted PI as one of the options, but it's really with the language that particularly in settings of people where you're really worried about poor adherence or possibly in the setting where you're starting therapy in the absence of resistance data. Um, and then recently they extended this to also include dolutegravir with nukes. And I think the reason for that was based on data that we'll talk actually in the context of other cases that dolutegravir's barrier to resistance, although maybe not quite where a boosted PI is, is certainly higher and may tolerate even a little bit of nuke resistance. We've tended to traditionally be worried about starting people who have, um, starting them on drugs in which the barrier to resistance is lower, which would include usually elvitegravir and raltegravir, just because of the possibility of nuke transmitted resistance. But again, 184V resistance is pretty rare as well. So I think that, you know, it's an interesting option and it's the simplest one and likely to work and then these others would also be viable options. Always with the idea that once the resistance data comes back, if you chose to take the conservative route, you can always modify therapy. So let me talk a little bit about another case. This is another treatment naive patient, but a more straightforward one and that he presents to clinic, newly diagnosed, has no past medical history, is asymptomatic, HLA-B5701 negative, sort of traditional, his labs are all back. His CD4 is high, his viral load is 74,000, mm -hmm. his genotype is wild type. And the question here is to try to get at what people are doing in a more generic sense, where there aren't pressing issues of a person rushing to start on treatment and all the data is not yet in. So what I have listed here are, I think, primarily the preferred options in the current guidelines. The DHS guidelines, and the only difference between them and ISUSA is the boosted PI. So the question is, in this setting where the patient has no preferences, what are you doing? What are you actually recommended when the patient says, I'll do whatever you tell me? Two nukes and a boosted PI, two nukes and raltegravir, tenofovir or TAF with FTC-CoBLVitegravir, tenofovir or TAF plus um, FTC-Dolutegravir, sorry, the FTC should be here. Um, Abacavir 3TC dolutegravir single tablet regimen or something else. And I have listed here at the bottom, again, the key characteristics of the patient. So go ahead and vote. Is this the real life? Thank you. Is this just fantasy? <laughs> Caught in a landslide? No escape from reality. <laughs> Okay, great. So we have half. Went, everybody went for single tablet regimens, which mm -hmm. I think either reflects our own personal bias or the clear bias of our patients. People always ask, you know, how important is it that it's a single tablet regimen versus two pills a day? And I always say, to me, it doesn't matter at all, but to my patients, it always matters. Um, so maybe, Ron, you want to tell me which, of, which you picked? The audience was split, more or less. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, 
I, I'd pick the, um, the Elvitegravir Kobe uh, TAF uh, FTC regimen, again, for simplicity primarily. Um, and uh, since he's 48, uh, you know, I don't think he would have any underlying cardiovascular disease, but there's always this question about uh, Abacavir and that. So that's why you were moving away from the other single tablet regimen with Abacavir. Yeah, yeah. But, but I could see using either of them without yeah. too much problem. Yeah, look, you can see how the audience got here. Connie, yeah. what are you telling patients who say, take whatever you want? Well, because we had the HLA B57 data, I went with the Abacavir 3TC Dolutegravir, and for no particular reason other than it's another single tablet regimen. Ron makes a good point about the age. I wasn't thinking of 48 as being but it, older. Yeah. And I can, <laughs> and, and I can your perspective I'm, changes. I, I the can older assure you, you that it is not old. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's an important point about cardiovascular disease. So if, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not one of the firm believers in the Abacavir effect on cardiovascular function, but I know there are other people who are, and it's a controversial issue, but... Since you published one of the negative studies. Yes, since I published, <laughs> I'm not a firm believer. I believe our negative data, but... So, okay, and Jeff, which one do you pick? Uh, I picked the Abacavir single tablet regimen. Um, just seemed to me to be cleaner, uh, simpler. Wouldn't have to uh, worry about the patient's, you know, either real or uh, perceived concerns about long-term bone marrow, um, uh, you know, uh, you know, osteopenia or uh, renal uh, issues. Um, although the, you know, TAF would mitigate against that, and then, you know, without the boosted. You know, without the booster, cobacistat also potentially makes life a little less complicated down in the future. So just, you know, three drugs um, as opposed to four. And with a negative HLAB 5707, uh, felt comfortable with that choice. Steve? Yeah, I, I chose the TAF-containing compound. I, I'm, I'm unclear about abacavir and cardiovascular risk, but I think probably I'm more likely to use that in younger individuals and more likely to use the TAF. Um, single tablet regimen and mm -hmm. older individuals and kind of and okay. those that have also other cardiovascular risk factors. Okay, so now I have a hypothetical for the audience. <laughs> <laughs> so the patient started their same, same exact scenario. Patient will do whatever you want. Just, you know, tell me what you recommend. The only thing I've added here is there's now a single tablet regimen with TAF, FTC, and dolutegravir. This doesn't exist, nor will it ever exist in this form. <laughs> but I have to ask. So go ahead and vote. I'm sorry? Oh, oh, sorry about that. How about by show of hands? Everybody, we can make this simple. Hold on, hands down. Hold down, hold on. Everybody so everybody chose three or five before, right? Mm -hmm. So show of hands, we're gonna vote for three, five, or six. How many people would pick three? How many people would pick five? And how many people would pick six? So, predictable. <laughs> yeah, so the, the reason I asked the question is, you know, I, I have to say in my heart of hearts, I always felt that if this combination existed, mm -hmm. it may actually have us moving closer to 
that one regimen that's right for everybody. Although obviously I, there, there's merits to the others. And one could argue that while this combination will never exist, Tripp showed us the data with TAF-FTC Bictegravir. Mm -hmm. And at least the hope is that Bictegravir will be Dolutegravir equivalent, meaning similar safety, similar efficacy. We know it's not gonna have drug-drug interactions like similar to Dolutegravir, um, and that it will come as a fixed-dose combination with TAF-FTC. Obviously, we won't know until the clinical trial data comes out. There are four large studies, two naive and two switch studies that are looking at it. And I think the key will be the simple stuff, like is it really as safe and is it really as effective? And then the other big one will be is the barrier to resistance truly as high as it is with dolutegravir. And if all of that is true, mm -hmm. at least based on this audience response, mm -hmm. maybe we will be getting closer to that one regimen for everybody. Okay. Um, here's the same naive patient. The only thing I've changed a little bit is that the person, I, first of all, I took away the hypothetical, um, and I changed this person is sort of at a higher risk. So he's got lower CD4s, he's got a higher viral load, and he's got alcohol and some psychiatric issues. Uh, he's met with a psychologist a few times, is stable, but drinking somewhat less now, but um, he needs to start therapy, wants to start therapy, but there are concerns about his ability to adhere, and he obviously there's a more compelling need to start because the CD4s are even lower. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and choose now, again, between these preferred options, the two nukes and a boosted PI, two nukes and raltegravir, the L-vitegravir-based regimen, TAF-FTC, dolutegravir, or bacavir-3-TC, dolutegravir, or something else. Go ahead and vote. Everyone should enjoy Queen for the next half hour or so because I can't promise anything after I step down. Okay, so interesting. So I'll, for the first time, really, in all of the options we've talked about, we still see the traction for the boosted PI. Again, the setting where the DHHS guidelines have continued to list this as one of the options. And then dolutegravir, the other drug in which the feeling is resistance is less likely to happen if things don't go right. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the paradox here is here we're giving people what might be two or three pills a day in somebody who were already worried about their ability to take medication, um, balancing that against versus one pill a day. Um, panel, quickly, Steve. Where are you in these kinds of patients? High-risk patient, you're not sure they're ever going to come back, but they need to start, and you're ready to do it. Yeah, I, I, I understand the rationale for protease inhibitor-based regimens, and I think I've done that in the past, but I, you know, I've tended to still use integrase uh, regimens in this setting, so I chose the abacavir 3TC dolutegravir. And do you think of the integrases as being interchangeable, or in this setting, maybe not? Well, I think probably the dolutegravir is the one that, that is... Uh, probably least likely to develop resistance. So it's, that's one of the reasons to consider that. Jeff? Yeah, I kind of uh, went with the two NRTIs and the boosted PI on this. Um, just because the kind of greater um, overall experience with that in this particular patient population, um, we are you know, very concerned about issues with um, adherence and um, 
you know, trying to, um, you know, perhaps save the integrase for a rainy day if you did eventually have some problems with, with, with PI resistance. And also, I, I figured my other colleagues might pick the integrase inhibitors. I wanted to be able to have another choice to talk about. <laughs> Ron, where are you? Yeah, no, I, 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 I picked the, um, the dolutegravir, abacavir, um, uh, uh, FTC combination. Uh, for, 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 for primarily because of the simplicity of the regimen um, and the fact that, uh, you know, there is not a booster and concerns about whether, you know, if he's using drugs, if there are going to be uh, additional interactions uh, that we might be concerned about. Um, but I can, I could see either way. Connie? So I chose number four, the TAF-FTC dolutegravir regimen, and I'm, although I know people have a lot of experience with the boosted PIs, the people who continue to use alcohol and have mild depression that I'm aware of or, or that I've treated in the past just have not done very well side effect-wise with boosted PIs, and so I was a little worried about that. The issue of cobicystat and TAF in the setting of alcohol abuse and depression, I'm also not, I, I think there's just less experience with that. And I didn't choose the Abacavir regimen, even though it would make more sense as a single tablet. Um, there's still some of those older data about high viral load and Abacavir use, and was a little bit worried about that. So mm -hmm. that's why I chose number four. Okay, great. So this is just a summary slide that reminds everybody what we've talked about, that how rare PI resistance is in all these PI-based studies. And that's why it's really been the mainstay in this setting. I think the balance has shifted a little bit with potent integrase inhibitors, and particularly with dolutegravir, people are rethinking it. Um, I must say, for me personally, I've had, we take care of a very complicated inner-city population. It's not unusual for us to have patients like this who never come back or come back intermittently and tell us they stopped the medicines on their own or stopped half of their regimen on their own or decided they were running out and didn't want to mm -hmm. come back in, so decided to do it every other day for a while. So lots of craziness happens, and I've always, in our, I think, relied on the boosted PIs in that setting, but even I'm coming around a little bit, particularly to the dolutegravir-based regimens. And again, we've alluded to this, but for those who aren't following these studies closely, these are now the four large, fully-powered, randomized control trials for first-line therapy with dolutegravir and nucleosides, showing that in three of the four settings, in the head-to-head -head comparison with the favarins, darunavir, ritonavir, and atazanavir, um, tanoff for FTC, that it's actually fared better. It's been superior in all of those cases, and it was non-inferior when compared head-to-head -head with raltegravir. And all of the differences in efficacy overall was based upon tolerability issues and people dropping, not pure virologic efficacy. In almost all cases, it's, it ends up being uh, equivalent or non-inferior. So it's this, but the more compelling thing really has been this other very unique observation in that now for these large trials, some of them followed out beyond three years and there is yet to be an individual in the clinical trials in only rare cases, I think a case reported from UCLA of somebody who actually developed resistance while on a first-line dolutegravir-based regimen. So there's not even a, a flood of cases from the community getting reported at meetings. And it's not just no dolutegravir resistance, but it's actually no nuke resistance either. 
And even in the PI-based studies where PI resistance is so rare, nuke resistance still occurred. It occurred less often than other regimens, but it's really sort of this extraordinary observation that's gotten a lot of traction and is the guidelines have shifted more and more talking about dolutegravir a little bit closer to a PI. Although I'll make the point that there are some limitations of dolutegravir and recent data presented at Croy suggested that while it may be getting close to a boosted PI, it probably isn't quite there. So while better as far as the barrier to resistance, it's not perfect. The other thing that I wanted to mention was this data that's coming out and that we're all hearing about about dolutegravir perhaps with some increase in CNS toxicity. So this is one of several studies. This one happens to have been published in the last month or last year or so. Um, this was just a cohort of patients in a clinic, two clinics in the Netherlands who received dolutegravir-based regimens. Uh, a lot of these are switched. Uh, some of them are naives. And what they reported were about 5 or 6% with things like sleep disturbance, insomnia, and some GI intolerance. And this was all seen in the trials. The thing that was unique here was these were the people who actually discontinued therapy as a result of these side effects, not just had the side effects. And then this other observation that's been seen, at least in one of the other studies that I'm aware of, where those who were taking a Bacavir with dolutegravir were more likely to discontinue because of these side effects, and sorry this doesn't project better, than those who were not on a Bacavir containing dolutegravir regimens. So again, no drug is without its warts, and there, my guess is that this is a relatively uncommon phenomenon, and people are discontinuing with a lower threshold because they have perfectly good other options to go to. Um, but it is something to at least be aware of. It's not just a free switch, and then you don't have to worry about anything else going wrong. Eric, could I mention one other thing? Yes. I just want to make one other point about this case to emphasize, and that is that when you put people on multiple drugs and you can get this kind of differential adherence where people take components of the uh, regimen instead of all of the regimen. So the beauty of a single tablet regimen is they're either on their three drugs or off three drugs. And I think that's a consideration in this setting. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And that, that is clearly an issue. Um, we see that all the time in our patients, especially these complicated patients who are dealing with a lot of other things. So now let's talk about a patient who experienced virologic failure. Um, this is a 36-year-old woman diagnosed with HIV a few years ago, CD4 of 375, viral load of 34,000, no comorbid conditions, HLA-B5701 negative, HBV immune, HCV negative, normal labs, and a wild-type genotype. She started at the time on Tenofovir FTC efavirenz, did well for at least a year and a half, and then several months ago admitted to poor adherence due to a stressful life situation, had confirmed viral rebound and her CD4 was 420, her viral load was in the 3,000 range, and a genotype showed what would be relatively predictable for someone actually taking this regimen, the 184V mutation conferring resistance to the cytosine analog, and the K103N mutation conferring resistance to tenofovir, uh, to efavirenz. So her life situation is now stabilized. She's very anxious to get on a suppressive regimen. She has no specific requests other than once daily uh, with as few pills as possible. <laughs> who, do, who wouldn't, right? Uh, and what would you recommend? So the choices would be nukes with the boosted PI, two, three, however many you want, an integrase and a boosted PI, um, and if you wanted to include some nukes onto that, I will let you do that. Uh, tenofovir or TAF with FTC, l vitegravir cobi 
tenofovir-taf with FTC plus dolutegravir, abacavir 3TC dolutegravir, or something else. So again, the characteristics that she's now failed to not for FTC, this should be efavirenz, not ropivirine, uh, 184V and K103N. So go ahead and vote. Okay, great. Well, so we have a wide distribution here. I'd say the winner, numerically, is a Bacavir 3TC dolutegravir, but not too far behind is either an integrase and boosted PIs or TAF, FTC, and dolutegravir, and then a little bit of other things. So, Jeff, we'll start in the middle. <laughs> what would you have done? Yeah, so this time I, I went with the, um, I was a frequentist, so I went with uh, the uh, Abacavir 3TC and dolutegravir. So, um, you know, I wasn't that... Uh, concern. I mean, the 184, you know, is associated with um, decreased efficacy for the um, 3TC. So, but we're, you know, and and, and um, potentially um, problems with with other uh, nucleoside reverse transcriptase inhibitors. Um, but I felt with the um, abacavir and the dolutegravir, we would uh, adequately overcome that. It would be a single type of regimen. Don't have to worry about the 103 mutation. She's not going to be on a non-nuke, and um, that should work very well. Ron, what did you pick? Yeah, I, I also picked the um, abacavir, 3T, or abacavir FTC dolutegravir regimen. Um, you know, she has this preference for single tablet. Uh, there's no reason why she can't be on a abacavir. And, um, um, yeah, I felt that that would be probably the simplest regimen. Connie? Nothing to add, Steve? <laughs> yeah, I actually like the NRTIs plus a boosted PI. Uh, you know, the M184V also affects the back of ear to some degree, so you're kind of, obviously, dolutegravir is extremely potent, may overcome that. Um, you already have somebody with adherence issues. I think we have a fair kind of clinical experience and some clinical data with using boosted PIs in the setting of M184V. So, but... Yeah, so this, you know, this is sort of one of those situations. It comes down to sort of what is the data, what mm -hmm. are the guidelines, and what's likely to work, and are there some reasons, compelling reasons, to consider some of these al other alternatives. And, uh, you know, the data that informs the guidelines right now is mostly these uh, second-line studies. There are three now large randomized controlled trials in resource-limited settings of first-line NNRTI failures, just like this patient. The only difference in these studies was that there's not routine viral load measurements and no genotype testing in most of them. So when people fail, they fail for a while before it's recognized that they need to switch because their CD4s are declining, which means they tend to accumulate a lot more resistance. So this is the Ernest study, which I use as an example, but there was an ACTG study and there was a study called Second Line that all looked at the exact same population. And what they did is they took these people and randomly assigned them to a boosted PI, lopinavir, ritonavir, raltegravir. Sorry about the colors. Uh, lopinavir, ritonavir with two to three nukes. The overwhelming majority received two nukes. Um, versus lopinavir, ritonavir with the integrase. And then after uh, about, I think it was 24 weeks, they were then on lopinavir, ritonavir monotherapy. So this was the idea was, okay, traditionally we say two and preferably three fully active mm -hmm. drugs, 
Um, let's find out what happens if you use alternative regimens, two fully active drugs, one fully active drugs with maybe partially active drugs, or even a boosted PI monotherapy. And these were the, the outcome. So here are the proportion of people less than 50 copies per mil after a year. And you can see those who received the boosted PI with the integrase or recycled nukes all had actually very high levels of response, 75%, which is pretty good even in a naive trial, yet alone in this population. Those who ended up on a boosted PI monotherapy did much worse. So you can't say that the boosted PI in just recycled nukes is because the boosted PI alone is so good, because mm -hmm. when you did the boosted PI alone, it wasn't as good. So the nukes are actually contributing. And then the interesting thing that was seen in this study and also seen in the others, that when you did a post hoc analysis and looked at the relationship in the group that received the recycled nukes, and you looked to see if there was a relationship between response and how much nuke resistance they had, saying, for example, the number of um, active nukes was zero active nukes versus one versus two to three, again, based on resistance data, it turns out there was no relationship whatsoever. In fact, those who had no active nukes based on the resistance data actually fared numerically mm -hmm. a little better. And I think most people believe that, that the reason for this isn't because active nukes aren't as good as resistant mm -hmm. nukes. It's because it's probably more of a marker for how adherent they are. The more adherent they are, the more likely they were to select for resistance. And I think the take-home message from this and the other two studies is that if you have a fully active boosted PI that you can combine it with just about anything, a fully active integrase or recycled nukes, even with resistance, and get a high response rate. And this really, these studies inform the guidelines, and the guidelines, that's what they are currently recommending, which means that all, all failures, it's a boosted PI is the only path forward for these first-line failures. Um, the problem is we don't have the data for some of these other combinations, like dolutegravir-based regimens, where we know, again, the barrier to resistance may be higher. It's just there's an absence of data. So this is what the guidelines would suggest would be the preferred options. And um, I'm not sure I can go backwards, but if I can. So you could see the, the guidelines would support one or two, uh, and then we really don't have data for three, four, or five. And I don't know what something else was from the audience. Any of the something else people have something creative that they were thinking? Because <laughs> there obviously are lots of other things, yes. Yeah. So I, 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 you know, I, I suggested that you could add nukes to this, which would get you to that regimen that you're talking about. Yeah. No, absolutely. Okay. There's one other gentleman. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. Pardon? So again, the same thing. So a boosted PI integrase and some nukes. But yeah, all of those, and all of those based on the data are almost certain to work because they're at least going to be as good as a boosted PI integrase, boosted PI nukes, and maybe could even be better. And we just don't mm -hmm. have the data. Yes?
and, and yeah, and we don't, and the, the bottom line is you're, you're, ap you're right, we don't have the data yet. That's the limitation. And it, it comes down to a little bit as to how much faith we have in Dahl Utegravir based on the data that exists. And we're actually going to come to this now in a moment. So mm -hmm. keep mm -hmm. all of this in mind. So same patient, but the patient is unhappy with what you did. <laughs> so the patient, unfortunately, was in Colorado and saw mm. Steve. Yes. <laughs> and, <laughs> And Steve said, you know, there are lots of really convenient, well-tolerated regimens that some of my colleagues would give you, but I'm going to give you darunavir Kobe plus Sinopher FTC. I, I actually would have done the same, but it was Steve he saw. Uh, had a good viral suppression for approximately nine months, had persistent GI symptoms, even tried to switch to atazanavir and Kobe, still had problems, um, and really just wanted to get off the PI. They were convinced that they were having symptoms from the PI and that no matter how much we tried to treat them with antiemetics and antidiarrheals and tweak things with a different PI, um, they just weren't happy, even though they were doing well virologically and they wanted to switch. And they did say that they would prefer to be on a single tablet regimen if they could. Mm -hmm. So then the question is, what would you recommend? Would you say, and some of this discussion may influence how we vote, but I think there's still room for discussion here. Would you say, you know what? There's just not a lot of data with those other regimens. I think we just need to continue to manage your GI problems as best we can and keep you on a tried and true regimen that's working. Um, I, I'm going to delete this because we already tried this and it didn't work. So don't vote for two, the boosted atazanavir. Um, Tanoff for FTC, Kobe Elvitegravir, we're going to say you want a single tablet regimen, we'll take a chance. Tanoff for FTC, um, dolutegravir, a back for 3TC dolutegravir. So it brings us full circle, only now the patient is pushing back a little bit against at least what the current guidelines would recommend. So go ahead and vote. And again, the characteristics are summarized down here at the bottom. History in the background of 184V and 103N, currently suppressed on a boosted PI in nukes. love this when there's a broad, different, a broad group of choices, because there really is no right answer. This is the art of HIV medicine, isn't it? So a few people said the patient's just going to have to suck it up. And uh, <laughs> I think, you know, based on our experience with HIV, that's usually a bad answer. Yeah. <laughs> it may be the best uh -huh. one as far as, you know, outcomes and things. We don't know, but it's never the right answer. Uh, we have to listen to our patients. They're telling us something. And, and the next time they come back, they'll have stopped on their own if we push it too hard. So we have to really have a good reason to say no. So thank you all for listening and ignoring number two. And then we have a mix. So 40% came back to Bacvir 3TC Dolutegravir, some TAF FTC Dolutegravir, and 20% now. I think we were at a very, very few percent went with Elvitegravir the first time. So panel. A lot of you already chose some of these. In fact, all of you chose the other options except Steve. What would you do, Steve? We're going to keep this short. Yeah, so uh, I chose actually the TAF FTC plus Dolutegravir. It's two pills, but I'll 
show them on the chart how small both of those pills are, and, <laughs> and it, get, it gets to the issue that was brought up about kind of sensitization of tenofovir with an M184V, and, and I think I would try that approach. And just to echo with your number one there, there's actual studies in the adherence literature that if you're nauseated with your medications, you won't take them. So, and, and since others, I think, already picked some of these other options, they would be easy sells. They would have said, why did Steve do this to you in the first place? Okay. Um, so, in this case, you know, the, we have the dolutegravir data, and I'll come back to this in a moment, but again, it's very limited in this particular setting without uh, two active nukes. Um, and then we, and, but there's a little, and we'll talk about it. And then with Elvitegravir, we have even less data. Um, there was a report at Glasgow where they did a, sort of retrospectively looked at a group of people who had underlying 184V mutation who ended up on uh, Elvitegravir COBE-based regimen, and for the most part were successful. But again, very limited data. So the one data set that we have that's actually quite robust was the SWORD study that was presented at CROI. So the SWORD study was dolutegravir and rilpivirine for maintenance therapy. So again, let me remind you, our patient is now suppressed on a boosted PI-based regimen because for first-line failures with 184V, at least based on the available data, the paths all tend to go to boosted PIs. Uh, but boosted PI didn't end up being a good choice for him. Um, this is a very large, robust data set of switching people to a regimen that doesn't include a boosted PI, and importantly, doesn't include 3TC or FTC, in fact, doesn't include nukes at all. So here we're talking about dolutegravir and rilpivirine, two studies of 1,000 patients who were virologically suppressed, who then were randomly assigned to continue their current regimen or switch to dolutegravir rilpivirine. Now, the important caveat here, and the reason I can't ignore this is because it's a huge data set. It's probably the biggest data set we have looking at this kind of a regimen and would apply to people potentially have the 184V mutation who are looking for options. The important caveat here, and this is really important to remember because we're going to have a question at the end. Remember, we, we've talked about, we know there's lots of data, phase three trials in viremic patients with nukes and boosted PIs. Uh, and we have a variety of other studies where we have viremic patients who received boosted PIs in raltegravir, boosted PIs in recycled nukes. The dolutegravir rilpivirine experience is all in maintenance therapy. It's all in suppressed people. Unfortunately, we don't know, and I don't know if there will ever be a study, I hope there will be, whether this would work in upfront therapy. But from the treatment experience population who are now suppressed and switched to this, the important thing to note was that they could have never had any change in prior therapy due to viral failure. So while this is interesting to consider, there are some serious limitations in being able to extrapolate this data set to our patients. Our patient did experience virologic failure, and while I think we would all agree the 184V is probably completely irrelevant, they did fail an NNRTI-based regimen. Now, you could argue, and I think a reasonable case could be made, yeah, but they had 103N, and we know rilpivirine was developed specifically to be active against viruses with the 103N. So I think at first blush, you'd say, yeah, our patient isn't the population studied, but it should work. But we have to acknowledge the limitations. And here's the data. 95% of people remain suppressed in both groups with essentially no real virologic failures. 
So again, it's a really important, robust data set. The study design were the two pills separately, so two pills a day. Now, based on this data, we'll almost certainly get approved for maintenance therapy and will quickly come as a single tablet regimen that will have a total drug mass of 75 milligrams, so a really, really tiny pill. Does this mean we can now say, based on this, that there is a path forward for patients like ours that don't include boosted PIs? I don't know. It would certainly suggest there might be, but there are some caveats. And then this is the data set that we actually end up relying on probably the most for the ability to get away with dolutegravir in the absence of two fully active nucleosides, right? So all four of those large randomized controlled trials I showed you with no resistance and high efficacy were treatment naive, no underlying resistance, two active nukes and dolutegravir. Um, this particular was, this was the, the sailing study. It was a post hoc analysis of a treatment experience population that were randomly assigned to receive optimized background regimen with either raltegravir or daltegravir. They were all integrase naive. And this study showed dolutegravir actually outperformed raltegravir in this setting. And they were able to do a post hoc analysis where they found that in a small group of people in the study, the optimized background chosen by the provider or the investigator were just nukes. So nothing else, no boosted PIs and things like that. Now, they were rare, but you can see in the dolutegravir group, there were 13 that received dolutegravir with either one active nuke or none. And all of them were suppressed, no virologic failures, as opposed to the raltegravir group, where there was four, 13 people who had one fully active nuke and there were four failures. So again, it's a really small data set, but it's the one people often talk about that along with the, the high barrier to resistance seen in the clinical trials suggests that we may be able to get away with a little bit less when we're using dolutegravir. And there's some bigger studies that are underway to again try to come up with a strategy that we can feel comfortable treating people who experience viral failure without necessarily having to use a boosted PI. Hmm. Comments? Yeah, Connie. So one point that I think nobody's quite made yet is how, what is the definition of a fully active nuke? And I think 3TC is a bit of a unique drug. When you just have the M184V mutation, that doesn't eliminate the activity of 3TC. It just reduces its activity. Right. And you still get a half a log viral load reduction with 3TC with an M184V mutation. And Many people now think that's probably enough for pushing forward with dolutegravir-based regimens. And there are two studies underway with dolutegravir plus 3TC, one in treatment naive and one in uh, fully suppressed patients. But I think that will tell us a little but bit more. Those are more. people without 3TC yes, resistance. Yes, those are without 3TC resistance. But there are other studies that showed the benefit of retaining Absolutely. 3TC in a regimen, mm -hmm. even though you had a 184B and other nucleoside um, RTI resistance mutations. And so I think there's something particularly unique about 3TC and retaining it in the regimen, even with an M184B mutation, and particularly when we can combine it with more robustly active drugs nowadays. And I think that's ex exactly right. And I think that was one of the really key things we also learned from those second line studies that, yeah, they didn't have a lot of other fully active nukes, but partially active nukes. Mm -hmm. And those partially active, the partial activity, even in the setting of resistance, made a contribution because right. they did better than the boosted PI alone. So no, I absolutely agree. 
Now, this was um, a study that was presented at Croy, no, at Glasgow, um, but there was also a study presented at Croy, I think, also, where they tried to push the envelope even further with dolutegravir. And they said, what about monotherapy with dolutegravir? And this was for maintenance therapy, small numbers of people. Um, and this was following on sort of the experience with boosted PIs, where there's a lot of experience with boosted PIs monotherapy. It turns out in that experience, there was a higher rate of low-level viremia. Maybe you could call viral failure with boosted PI monotherapy, but no selected resistance. And you simply added back the nukes and all was good with the world. But the outcomes weren't as good, and that's why I didn't get a lot of traction, but no harm done. The thought was maybe the same thing could be applied to dolutegravir in the setting of maintenance. And what they found in this study were that there were six of 85, not a huge number who had detectable viremia at 24 weeks. And over time, they found three of the six with viral failure who actually did indeed develop integrase resistance. And the, the conclusion from this study was that dolutegravir monotherapy should not be pursued. So, so I think we know that dolutegravir is closer to a boosted PI, but this is telling us that it's probably not quite there. And we do need to be a little careful from being too cavalier with dolutegravir. Uh, it's gonna need a little bit of help, probably to have a high level of success. The question is how much? Is a little bit of a recycled nuke or something else gonna be enough? And hopefully we'll learn more from future studies. Now, the last case, I think, we, do we have time? We've got one minute and 46 seconds. Okay. Can you do it in because, one minute and 46 seconds? Um, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and I was going to say, but I have 15 minutes for questions and answers, but there's a lot of questions, so probably <laughs> it's only fair to, to, to do that. Okay, let me try to do some of the questions then. Um, so here's one of the questions was, what about tenofovir hypersensitivity with 184V? I always use tenofovir for patients who have 184V and avoid abacavir. And I think, as was mentioned, this, and maybe you wrote this, but I think there's something to be said about this. How much it applies in the current era with regimens that are ultimately fully suppressive, we don't know. A lot of this experience was in the partially suppressed patients in the dark ages. Um, but I think as a, a general rule of thumb, if you're picking and choosing, it probably makes sense if all things are otherwise equal to pick regimens in which the susceptibility looks the best. And that, but I mean, frankly, you could make the same case for Tenofovir FTC and Dolutegravir. You'd say, yeah, yeah. Oh, with with. Yeah, and that's a that's a perfectly reasonable regimen in the setting with 184V, where you're using an NNRTI with Dolutegravir, which alone may be enough based on SWORD, and you're just throwing on some extra stuff just in case. So I think that's, a, that's actually a, a good point and a good interesting strategy when one considers the limitations of extrapolating from SWORD to patients who have failure with resistance. Sorry. There's a, some of these are holdovers from the hep C talk. <laughs> And I am not going to take those on. <laughs> oh, these are, maybe I do have time for my last case. 
In, in the Bictegravir head-to-head study with Dolutegravir, exclusion criteria included previous OI, CD4s less. Oh, this was also a TRIPS. Yeah. yeah. I think they're, this must they're be the entire stack. They might be the whole stack. They might have given you the whole stack. In Domino, what were the integrase mutations? Was it 148? No, it was not. I don't remember off the top of my head what they were. There was a one, one, one of them had 155, but there was definitely no 148. The 148 with additional mutations is the one associated with reduced susceptibility to dolutegravir. Interestingly, these three people did not fail with 148 or that pattern. So they failed with another pattern. But it was definitely new emergent resistance that wasn't present at baseline. Yeah. I actually think that most of these others are holdovers. Are any questions or comments at the microphone that people would like to make about anything we've discussed? Should we take? Okay, let me just do the. This isn't too long a case. This is actually a pretty brief case. So, a 56-year-old man, long history of HIV, diabetes, and coronary artery disease, has been followed off antiretrovirals for years now, and finally agrees to start. No symptoms, a negative exam. His CD4 is 335, viral load is 120,000. He's HLAB5701 negative. Hemoglobin A1C is 7.1% on metformin, 1,000 BID. Hep B surface antibody positive, Hep C antibody negative. He has 2 plus proteinuria and a creatinine clearance estimated mm. around 47 or 50 mm. mils per minute. His HIV genotype is wild type. So this is really getting at, again, special populations. We talked about people you don't have resistance data on. We talked about people who are poorly adherent. This is the patient who's got serious metabolic problems. Um, so the question is, would you pick amongst these various choices, most of which are in the guidelines with a few deviations, TAF, FTC, L-Vitegra-Cobi, and I'm only using TAF here since um, TDF shouldn't be used in people with creatinine clearance of less than 60. It has to be a dose adjust for less than 50, and as you know, TAF is approved in any regimen for people with creatinine clearances down to 30. That's what it's approved for. We could debate as to whether it's a good idea to use it in those settings, but that's what it's used for. So TAF FTC L-Vitegra Kobe, TAF FTC Raltegravir, TAF FTC Boosted PI, TAF FTC Dolutegravir, Abacavir 3TC Dolutegravir, Abacavir 3TC plus a Boosted PI, um, Abacavir and TAF sparing regimen. So something clever or something else. And again, the characteristics of the patient are listed down here. Metabolic problems, significant chronic kidney disease. Go ahead and vote. I paid my dues time after time. I've done my sentence. We'll never be able to replace Freddie Mercury. Okay, so we have about half of the people who picked TAF FTC Dolutegravir, and then a smattering of Elvitegravir and Raltegravir. Ron, what would you have chosen? Oh, I went with the majority. Um, I went with the majority. Um, uh, the TAF obviously being the more appropriate tenofovir type drug, and then the, the fact that it's a single, single tablet. Um, and it avoids some of the metabolic complications with uh, Abacavir. Okay, Jeff? 
Yeah, well, Ron and I, Ron and I work in the in the same office, so we, we you know you we, have to pick the so same thing. I have thing. to pick the same thing, um, but uh, for the same rationale, um, avoid the um, Bacavir, go with something uh, once a day, um, use the TAF and uh, Dalitegravir. Steve. Yeah, I, I chose the same regimen as well. The there is a drug interaction with metformin, so that has to be. Uh, the dose of that has to be changed. Um, it is a question, I think, an unanswered question of whether TAF is less nephrotoxic than TDF or not nephrotoxic. It's a, I'm not aware of any cases of Fanconi's with TAF and so on. So I, I think that will be one of the kind of post-marketing mm -hmm. things that would be interesting is the degree to which we see progressive and, renal disease. And you might have a little angst. A little angst. You wouldn't, but, but I you wouldn't be able to choice. say, now I don't have to worry about a dr drug contributing at all. Well, the other issue, I think, is, you know, he probably has another reason for his renal disease and may, creatinine clearance may quickly go out of the range where you can use TAF, but we'll have to see. And the dolutegravir alone is going to bump that artifactually. Yep. Connie? Same thing? Same thing. <laughs> you don't even work in that office. No, <laughs> Okay. So what about... Um, what would you recommend about the same patient, except let's say the scenario was different, that the person started out with relatively normal renal function, has been on therapy for a while in a TDF-based regimen before TAF-based therapy became widely available with TDF, FTC, and raltegravir, and has experienced a progressive decline in his renal function from, let's say, 90 mils per minute over the last year or two down to 47 mils per minute. Would you monitor without further change, switch to TAF-FTC, Raltegravir or something else, Abacavir-3-TC with something else, or think about an Abacavir and TAF sparing regimen or something else? So again, the scenario here, it's a little different because our patient had mm -hmm. stable renal function, off treatment. This patient is on therapy and experiencing a progressive decline, admittedly with hypertension, diabetes, and on TDF-based therapy. Go ahead and vote. Okay, so I think I think if I had it right, all of our panelists picked a TAF-based regimen before. So that's what the majority of the audience would do. Anyone would change their mind? Ron? Yeah, I, I, I guess I am a little concerned about the fact that his, um, uh, his uh, renal function is deteriorating while he's on tenofovir and um, not knowing exactly whether TAF is that much more protective in that type of situation. I probably would avoid those plus avoid the abacavir sparing. Uh, so you'd have gone with something abacavir like, taft sparing if yeah. you could. Yeah, I actually agree with Ron. <laughs> <laughs> it's like this group so, thing right, at the right. care so, clinic. You know, huh? and, and you showed us very good data from the sword, you know, trial with the dolutegravir and the repovirin. So you know that might be a good option mm -hmm. in in this case to spare both the abacavir and the uh, you know taft. Okay, so let me um, just sort of raise just raise a few issues. I think everybody is aware, I think Connie alluded to it earlier, the controversy 
surrounding the abacavir associated with cardiovascular disease. So that would be one of the big concerns. We don't think abacavir is causing renal disease. The big concern is if we believe these top studies that it may be associated with cardiovascular disease, the group we'd be the most worried about are those who have lots of other cardiovascular risk factors, like this particular person. Um, in contrast, if you believe this group, including the ACTG 5001 study that Connie did, then maybe you'd be more on the fence. I must say, I'm always on the fence, but anxious. That's just my nature. Um, and then, what do we know about TAF and people with significant kidney disease? Well, we know that with TAF, you have much lower systemic levels. We know that TAF in switch studies and in first-line studies, you have less of an effect on creatinine than TDF and less of an effect on tubular protein excretion, all of which seems promising. Uh, but when you look at the extent of the data we have in people on TAF with advanced kidney disease, it's limited to this study because the randomized control trials had people only with creatinine clearances of down to 70 or some down to 50. And frankly, even though it allowed that, there were very few in those studies that really had advanced kidney disease. So we have this one study where they took people, about two-thirds of 240 people were on a TDF-based regimen. The other third were not and randomized them, and they had chronic kidney disease. They had creatinine clearances between 30 and 70, and they randomized them to stay on their current regimen or switched to a TAF-based regimen. And they basically demonstrated that people remained renally stable, more or less, throughout, regardless of how you looked at it. And based on this data and some PK data and a few other small studies, the FDA said, you know what, we're going to say TAF is okay for everybody with a creatinine clearance down to 30. But we need to acknowledge the fact that, one, the data set is small. Two, there was no control group, so we don't know for sure that, so everybody got switched. We don't know for sure that if they stayed on their stable regimen with their stable renal function, that they too wouldn't have stayed stable. So we don't have that kind of information. Um, what we also don't know is what would happen in somebody who's on a boosted PI where we know that the tenofovir systemic levels are even higher with TAF. So there are lots of limitations to the data. And while the package insert would say it's within the standard of care to do this, you might still be anxious in people with chronic kidney disease, and particularly anxious in those who are experiencing a progressive decline, because they don't have stable renal function. And in that setting, we really have absolutely no data. So if you're going to, yeah. To better understand the underlying cause, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah. So the question was, what about a renal biopsy? And certainly, you know, in somebody who's experiencing that progressive decline in renal function, getting a nephrologist involved, trying to better understand how much of this is related to tenofovir versus renal. People talk about doing, you know, um, fractional excretion of phosphorus. I think all of those things would be reasonable to pursue. But ultimately, we end up usually making a decision about therapy before we have all of the data available. But absolutely important to better understand what the driving force is behind this person's progressive decline in renal function. So if you were going to do a, a back of your TAF sparing regimen, and I think mm -hmm. an argument could be made for it based on the limited data, what would it be? A boosted PI alone, a boosted PI with 3TC. This is a person now who is um, bringing you back, this is our patient who is um, low creatinine clearance. Let's say this is the person who's not on therapy right now. So they're getting ready to start but have advanced renal dysfunction. Boosted PI alone, boosted PI3TC, boosted PI integrase, 
Dolutegravir alone, Dolutegravir 3TC, Dolutegravir Rolpivirine, or something else. Go ahead and vote. Okay, so a little more than half, dolutegravir-rolpivirine, recognizing that we don't have data for first-line therapy, but we have the SOAR data. Um, boosted PI with an integrase, about a third. Um, I think, Ron, you had said that you actually would be looking at this kind of a regimen. Which would you have chosen, do you think? Well, I went with the boosted PI and the integrase um, uh, for the simple reason that we don't have the full data with the dolutegravir-rilpivirine uh, combo uh, in, in this type of patient, but it would seem a reasonable possibility if there were contraindications to using uh, ritonavir in, in the patient. Yeah, so, I mean, again, we're forced to sometimes make decisions without as much data as we would like. Um, and just to sort of fill in some of the gaps, here is the one large, ooh, the large treatment naive trial, this may be a sign. Oh, this is definitely a sign. Yeah. <laughs> they turned you off. They turned you off. Yeah, this is the hook at the Oscars. Yeah. Playing the music. The music is playing, yeah. Let's see if I can get back to it quickly. I can wrap We're wrapping up, but. Um... Yeah, please. Thank you. And somebody that has some degree of significant degree of renal disease, the booster that you used, would it matter to you whether you use Norvir versus um, Kobe? So the question is, would it matter if I use Norvir versus Kobe in somebody who has chronic kidney disease yeah. or progressive the, renal disease? Does the Kobe make you nervous at all, or it's just a number? And Yeah, yeah so the, the issue is that you know, it affects renal tubular handling of creatinine, so there's this almost immediate effect on your um, creatinine level and your calculated creatinine clearance, but it's an artifact of that. So for me, it probably wouldn't bother me too much either way, um, but you just need to be aware that you're gonna see that immediate shift and not panic, and mm -hmm. then monitor closely after the first two to four weeks for any true progressive decline in renal function. And there is a little bit of an effect with Norvir also, just not as much as with Kobe. Thanks. So here's the large, so again, when we think about available large randomized control trials in viremic patients, we have the nukes and boosted PIs. This is boosted PI and uh, integrase inhibitor, darunavir, ritonavir, raltegravir, and these lines are totally lost on this figure, but show up beautifully on the computer. <laughs> the bottom line is the primary endpoint was non-inferiority, but in the people with lower Viral, uh, lower CD4 is less than 200, or viral loads are greater than 100,000, it didn't work quite as well. And that's mm. why it's not listed as a preferred option. Mm. But there certainly is a large, robust data set for people who don't have high viral loads and low CD4s that this appears to be an active regimen and obviously doesn't include any nucleosides. This is the Gardell study, lopinavir, ritonavir, 3TC, a large phase three fully powered study showing similar efficacy between the one nuke in the boosted PI and two nukes. Again, these are all people who are treatment naive, and it was true regardless of viral load or CD4. Can we extrapolate from this experience with darunavir ritonavir, for example, and 3TC? We don't know. One would expect you probably could, 
but we just simply don't have the data for first-line therapy. And then finally, new regimens and combinations people are looking at. Um, this is dolutegravir 3TC, Connie was alluding to. It's being looked at in switch studies, and it's being looked at in naive. This is the data set for a small pilot study in treatment-naive patients, carefully selected to have viral loads of less than 100,000, CD4s are greater than 200, followed very, very closely on this regimen, and showing that Showing that, <laughs> showing that, well, this is terrible. Here's the advancer on your handheld thing. Oh, wait, there we go, thank you. Okay. Whoever did that for me, I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, showing that if you look at viral loads less than 50 here in yellow, everybody got there except two people. One person committed suicide, it was not thought to be drug related. And the other person had a, essentially a low viral load of like 90, then 110, and then went back to undetectable without any change in therapy. So this is a tiny study of 20 individuals that were carefully selected to be at low risk. Uh, there is a larger study of over 100 people that's been fully enrolled and in follow-up through the ACTG that expanded to include about 25% of people with viral loads of over 100,000. And there's a fully powered phase three trial that recently closed to enrollment that is being followed to definitively demonstrate the overall safety and efficacy of this novel combination that would include just two drugs and not have tenofovir in any form or abacavir as a part of it. And in the phase three trial, they'll be looking at people with viral loads that go up to 500,000. So we still won't have data in the very, very high viral loads, but at least for the majority of people, we'll have data that we can look at. So now our post-test question. Mm -hmm. Hopefully you're paying attention. <laughs> Which of the following have not been shown to be effective in phase three trials of viremic patients? Darunavir ritonavir plus nukes, darunavir ritonavir plus raltegravir, lopinavir ritonavir plus raltegravir, lopinavir ritonavir plus 3TC, or dolutegravir plus rilpivirine. Go ahead and vote. <laughs> Okay, well, <laughs> this is what happens late in the day when everyone's getting hypoglycemic, or late in the morning. Um, sure. I just showed you Too the many. data Gardell was <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> So I just showed you this one. Um, this was a little tricky. This was in the treatment, ex the treatment failure patients, we have the data, but it was viremic patients, but it was fully powered phase three. Um, this one was the NEAT study that I just showed you, so most people <laughs> didn't get confused. And this is the one that we really don't have the data. We have the best data, but it's all in maintenance therapy for patients, not in phase three trials in viremic patients. There's no way I'm going to get invited back, I can tell. <laughs> I can't remember that part <laughs> There's one, one last question which I actually wanted to address that Steve had alluded to, dolutegravir and metformin. Just so you're aware, so the drug interaction, what the recommendations are, because dolutegravir bumps metformin levels, is it's not contraindicated. But they recommend that you don't start the two of them together with a, do, a metformin dose of over 1,000 milligrams a day. 
So if you're starting it for the first time in someone on dolutegravir, don't start above 1,000 a day. If the person is already on metformin and it's 1,000 a day or less, no problem adding dolutegravir. If they're on, for example, 1,000 milligrams BID when you're starting dolutegravir, you need to drop the metformin dose back. And then you can titrate up based on the effect and tolerability. And with that, I will stop and thank you all for your attention and thank the panelists for participating. Good. Okay, I'm one of those people who's lagging from hypoglycemia, so I do think it's time for lunch, finally. Um, I don't have a cheat sheet here to tell you where to go, so hopefully our folks in the back will let you know. She's pointing out the door. I assume there's something out there. <laughs> but thank you all. We'll take a break and be back at 2.15 to start uh, what's going to be a very dynamic afternoon session. So don't eat too much so you're not uh, comatose. <laughs>